Hi, this is Zoe Routh, and this is the Zoe Routh Leadership Podcast. Holy dooly, do we have a wonderful guest today. I'm so excited to bring him to you. His name is Chris Sinog. He is the author of The New Rules of Marksmanship. He is a master training specialist in the Navy and on a mission to help others live their lives as true warriors. He is an ex-Navy SEALs. He spent 20 years in the teams as an elite warrior and those of you who know me know that I have an f- absolute fascination with the Navy SEALs and the what it takes to perform and train at such an extreme level. I often cite them as a model for high-performance teamwork and how we can get into the collective mindset to really have each other's backs. And we dive into great detail in this conversation about how to do that, how you can actually adapt and adopt some of the techniques that the SEALs use to train their teams of leaders and apply that in your own business. Everything from team development through to personal self-mastery. This is a treat. You're going to love it. And if you do love it, please comment, please review, please share, get the word out there. This was fabulous. I hope you enjoy it. Let's do it. So excited to have you on the call, Chris Sinog, all the way from San Diego. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, I've been wanting to talk to somebody from the Navy SEALs for donkey's age, and I'm fascinated by the things that you do or have done in your training and performance. And so I often quote Navy SEALs as the epitome of what it means to have a high-performing team. And I'm so fascinated and curious about everything that has to do with that. First of all, though, you were in the SEALs and served in the military for 20-odd years. Is that right? That is correct. 20 years, 13 days. And <laughs> appa- apparently that's a, a donkey age. Did you? Is that what you said? Uh, yeah, I don't Donkey's even know. Age? I've never heard that before. I think I just but, made that up. I don't think it's a real expression. All right. <laughs> it's one now. It's a long one, that's for sure. And when did you leave the service? I retired in 2009. Okay, so you've had, where are we now, 11 years out of the service. And you've written four books, and your recent one is The New Rules of Marksmanship. And it's really about how to learn anything at a high performance level. Is that right? It is. I designed it. um, I wrote it basically because when I retired from the SEAL teams, I started teaching people to shoot civilians, law enforcement, and it just wasn't working. The same techniques I used as I was our head sniper instructor uh, just wasn't working for civilians. And I realized it wasn't what I was teaching. It was who I was teaching. So I needed to teach people to basically live like warriors. And that allows them to learn like warriors as well. Wow, that's fascinating. So the difference between civilians and the SEALs team, so this is what you've uncovered. There is a difference. What is that difference? The differences, especially with the SEAL teams, is our just drive to accomplish whatever mission we're given. And that's one big thing that differentiates SEALs from any other group in the military, any other group in the world, is we're not given a mission and told how to do it. We're just given a mission and told when it needs to be done, and we need to figure out how to get it done. So the same thing applies to learning in that when I was running the the SEAL sniper course, I could have been teaching, uh, you know, knitting 
to my brothers and they would have, you know, knitted the best hats and sweaters, you know, in the world. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> they might have had a few comments about that. <laughs> yeah, but it's, you know, it's, uh, it's just the drive and the understanding too about why we need to learn. Like that's a big thing. I'm, I'm sure, you, you know, you've heard people talking about how important your why is in anything you do. So that's one of the things I actually teach in the new rules of marksmanship is helping people develop and figure out what their why is for learning, in this case, how to shoot. Because if people don't have a strong enough why to learn how to shoot, they're not going to do it. They're not going to you know, get up early to practice. They're going to hit the snooze button and go back to sleep. But the same thing, you know, it came from being a Navy SEAL, and your why there is to stay alive yourself, but more importantly, to help out the team and keep the team alive. I've read a lot about Navy SEALs teams, and that is a curious thing for me, in that it's always about survival, and, and it's about the other guys and the team first. The whole bigger purpose of serving the nation is secondary to that. Is that correct? Is that how you see it as well? It's about you and the guys, and then and service to the nation is, is sort of comes after that? Yeah, there's definitely no other group in the world that understands teamwork uh, as much as, you know, we do in the SEAL teams. And it has to be like that. The reason is if you are going to go into a room and you know on the other side of that door there's people with guns that are going to try to kill you, you can't go in there with a group of people that you don't fully trust with your life. So it has to be like that. And that's what makes us so successful. Everybody in the SEAL teams, no matter what, I know they would take a bullet for me. I'd take a bullet for them. It's not even a question of hesitation because, you know, just the brotherhood that we have. How do you get to that point? You get to that point by blood, sweat, and tears through training. And that's why SEAL training is so hard. And everybody talks about how hard it is. Well, the reason it's so hard is it's basically like a filter to see who's going to quit when basically everybody else in the world would quit. And if you show up there saying you're the greatest swimmer, like we've had college and Olympic level swimmers that come to training, you're going to basically, the instructors will take you and you'll swim alongside a boat until you start to drown. Like you physically can't swim anymore. And they just want to see if you're going to quit. You're either going to drown or you're going to quit. And if you choose drowning, they're not going to let you drown. They may have to resuscitate you. But if you quit, then you're going to end up like, you know, the 80, 75, 80% of people who don't make it through training. But once you realize and get to that point, in training, that all translates into being in the SEAL teams and just knowing that everybody around you has been through that and that they're not going to quit on you. Mm. Are people born with that mentality, that ability to, I'm not, never going to quit thing? Or is that something that you can develop? Yeah, I don't know if it's born or not. I definitely think it's something you can develop. I do believe that when people show up to SEAL training, I think SEALs show up to training mixed in with, you know, 80% of non-SEALs. 
And we just filter out the ones that are SEALs already. You know, they've already got it in them. There's nothing we do in SEAL training to make you hard like that, to make you not give up. You have to have it when you show up. And I remember one time when I was in SEAL training, it was Hell Week, and we were running around in a circle with boats on our heads. And I remember literally thinking, I am going to just fall down and die right now. And I remember thinking, I was like, well, just keep going because I would rather that I die and people point at me and go, you know what, Chris didn't quit. Then for them to know that people were watching me go ring the bell and quit training. Well, that's a that's a hardcore peer pressure situation. Was that the first time you realized that you had it? Or did you have some inkling before that time that you had that now that resolve to stay in the game? I think I knew I had it. You kind of have to know it showing up at buds because there's and buds is basic underwater demolition seal training and i've also been an instructor there so i've seen all sides of the training and there's people that show up and they they think they can make it through training and then there's the people that do make it through training are the ones that you know you're going to make it through training or you're going to die like there's no there's no question in your mind and I also worked with SEALs. I was a, like a deep sea diver. I was a dive med tech. And I worked with SEALs for a couple of years before that. So I understood the environment and what they were doing and the kind of operations they did. Yeah, so you're familiar with what was required and what kind of engagement you needed. You talked earlier about getting people to develop the warrior mindset if they're going to learn anything. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? You know, it's either you're either going to succeed or you're going to die. You know, that's part of it. The big another part of it is I was saying was knowing what your why is mm. and also understanding like your beliefs. That's one of the things I go go into in the new rules of marksmanship also is what beliefs do you have that are forming your actions right now and your ability to learn? And I also go into, you know, positive thinking because one of the most common things that people will, they'll like send me an email that's like, hey, Chris, I, you know, I want to get better at shooting, but I'm, I always shoot low and left. And by saying that, they are always going to shoot low and left. There's nothing I can do to help somebody improve if they are telling themselves they're doing X because our beliefs are so powerful. And if you're telling, if your mind is telling your body that you shoot low and left all the time, you're always going to shoot low and left. You know, and it's the same thing with anything in life. If you say, you know, I've always been overweight well, you're always going to be overweight. There's, you'll fall off your diet. Something's going to happen that is going to change it because your mind doesn't want to be wrong. So your mind is going to figure out ways to make your, the statements that you're using correct. It's so powerful. When I retired from the Navy, I had like nine major surgeries the last year I was in to kind of rebuild me. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And, um, 
but I left and I was taking oxycodone, the high narcotic painkiller that's really bad for you. And I wanted to get off it. And I realized I would wake up every day and my wife would go, Hey, how's your back doing? Oh, it's, you know, it's terrible. You know, oh, it hurts. And then I just stopped saying that. And after just a month of me not saying my back hurt, I'd say, Oh, it's getting better. You know, Oh, it's, you know, it's not as bad. It's getting better. It really did start getting better. And I was able to get off pain medication. So it's, super powerful what you tell yourself were you consciously doing that yes. to to when you, oh, so you were saying i'm getting better as opposed to it's awful was there another time during your service that you actively worked on your belief your inner belief system so that you could perform better um you know i don't know about actively but that is part of like through training you come to believe you are better than I don't want to say anybody else, but you are better than the enemy. And you have to believe that. You know, that going back to that situation of going into a room where other people are going to shoot at you. And, you know, people ask, how can you do that? How, you know, how are you able to do that? And it's, well, through training, I know that I'm better than the person on the other side of that door, people on the other side of that door, especially with my teammates with me. So, you know, for us, it's the same as like, I don't know how somebody could sit at a desk and file papers all day. That would, you know, be crazy for me. I couldn't handle it. But, you know, there's people that are trained to do that. So, Stephen Kotler in his book, Stealing Fire, talks about um, the Navy SEALs, and he did some research with the teams, how you develop a hive mind as a collective. So going on a small mission, or going on a mission as a small team, I should say, there's this, and you alluded to it, there's a sense of deep intimacy and deep trust. What is it like, the experience like, when you are at the pointy end of your performance and you have your brothers around you and you have this sort of sense of collective mind? Is that one of the experiences that you had? And what was that like? Yeah, definitely. That's exactly what it is. It's you you know, and you have to know what everybody else on the team is doing. And everybody on the team is also a leader. And for leadership in the SEAL teams, it's completely different than leadership anywhere else in that being a leader means being a great teammate because everybody has to lead. And, you know, that, that whole, thing where you know flocks of birds are flying and a single bird will turn and they'll all know to turn with that one and then another one makes a decision it's the same thing and that's why when i've gone on to teach other groups like law enforcement units federal agencies how to you know do operations like like we do in the seal teams one of the things i'll have them do is like play games like soccer together as a team because learning skills like that with your teammates are super effective in being able to do the same thing inside a building or in a field doing an operation. So if we tra translate this to a business context then, so I'm thinking about the, exec the CEOs and executives that I work with where there is embedded hierarchy. What would you say about that? How could you get 
a leadership team to function more in a high performance context where everybody's a leader. Playing soccer is one thing, but um, in terms of within the function of the business, how would you go about doing that? You know, I always want to say to business leaders, it's like, if would you rather that I could help you become a better leader or would you rather I could help everybody in your organization be a leader? Because I, I think, like I said, in, in the SEAL teams, for certain things, yes, there is, you know, we have leadership and we have, we have that going on. But when it comes to the operations and doing stuff as a team, everybody at any second needs to be able to step up into the leadership role. And that leadership role is going to fluctuate all the time. And I think it's really important right now with everything going on with the COVID stuff and social isolation that teams are now separated and leaders need to be able to trust their team to be able to, to operate effectively, you know, without them essentially breathing down their neck and, you know, micromanaging them. And if every one of them was a leader, well then, you know, they wouldn't have to worry about that. So it's just a matter of, I think, teaching like what it means to be a good teammate, you know, as far as in the, in the SEAL teams. And I have an acronym I use for that, for the teams. I'm, I'm a big fan of acronyms, but I use teams as an acronym and it's take responsibility, encourage others, ask for help, master your job and sacrifice for the team. Okay, that went a little fast for my writing. <laughs> Take responsibility, <laughs> encourage others, ask for help. Master and... your job. That's important because so many people often want to just point out when other people aren't doing their job mm. effectively in teams. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, if everybody just stops doing that and go, wait a minute, let them worry about that. I'm gonna master my job. And, uh, and then the last one is sacrifice for the team. Which one do you think is the hardest for people to learn? Asking for help. Really? Why is that, do you think? Uh, well, especially when it comes to kind of the alpha male type roles that I tend to have worked with and taught over, you know, the last 30 plus years. It's just, you know, I don't know why it is psychologically, but I can tell you from thousands of days on, you know, say a shooting range and asking tens of thousands of alpha males after giving a demonstration of how to do something on the range, like this is how you do a, a magazine reload. And then I'll go, all right, guys, got any questions? And in 30 years, how many questions do you think I got? <laughs> I'm sad to think that it's probably zero. It is exactly zero. Well, I shouldn't say that because I have run several ranges since I've retired with females there. And they are very happy to ask questions. So I have gotten questions, but if we just take it down to the ones where I've had alpha males there. Yeah. So no questions. And then we go up and they get up on the line and they start shooting and doing whatever the drill was. And I'll walk down and I'll go, 
do you know what we're doing here? And, you know, they'll kind of like mumble, oh, no, uh, you know, uh, can you show me that again? So. That always sounded like a paradox to me to have a group of alpha males and then having them work as a collective. <laughs> so how, do, how does that actually work? How do you manage the ego aspect of alpha male? I'm in charge. I'm the boss. I'm the best. With I'm working with a band of teammates. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things, you know, when it comes to, you know, that whole thing about being a team and everybody's a leader is now you realize when you realize everybody is in it in the same way you are in that same context, you realize that the guy next to you is a leader just as much as you are. So in the SEAL teams, we're, we're always asking questions because we know it could save my life. It could save my buddy's life. It could save a mission. So I was a medic. So I would teach, you know, medical stuff to other, you know, my teammates and the radio men would be teaching me how to operate radios. And if we didn't know something, if we had a question on anything, we're always asking questions. Well, that makes sense. It's part of your acronym, ask for help. Um, <laughs> and it makes sense. So you, you sort of beat it out of each other, I guess, when you get into that context. It's a survival mechanism. Um, yep. So that totally makes sense. So I'm interested, again, coming back to this, the hive experience where everybody needs to be able to take responsibility and step into the leadership role. How does that transition work? So you've, I'm guessing you have somebody who's nominated as the mission leader, and then you go into operations and something happens and somebody else has to take over. How does that transition happen? How do you pass the leadership baton, say, for example? Yeah, it, it doesn't happen. It's really the first person that realizes there's a void in that space. And it all comes down to, you know, what a lot of people are talking about now with flow. And it just happens. There's a void that's created and we've practiced and worked together so much that we just flow like water. So water is going to, you know, seek that void and fill it. And when it gets filled, the rest of the water just, you know, flows behind it. It's not, there's not like some water in the back that's trying to sneak its way around up to front and go, no, I need to be the leader. Yeah, it just naturally works out. So I think this is an interesting thing. So this is about the neuroscience of high performance and the flow state of being. How much do you train for that in, in the work that you do now? And how much do you train for that in the SEALs team? In the work I do now, that's what I train for, is for people to be able to operate in flow with whatever they're doing, whether it's working with firearms, I'm teaching uh, professional golfers now and working with soccer players and all kinds of other sports. And the way to get in flow in shooting. So if I'm teaching somebody to have a concealed carry gun and they want to be able to protect themselves with that firearm, should something bad happen and some, you know, say there's a, a shootout or whatever, the way you're going to get in flow is to be able to have all the mechanical aspects of what you need to do with your firearm or with your body so ingrained that you don't need to think about it. So drawing, you know, pulling the gun out of your holster, aiming the gun, manipulating the trigger, 
how you handle the gun, all of that stuff is going to happen without you even thinking about it. It's like the times you, you drive home from work and you're like, wait a minute, how did I get here? That's because you, you've done it so many times that you're just, you know, those are actual flow states that you're in. And that's what you want to get in. And you do it by, by ingraining those skills. And then another thing that I teach is using visualization in all of the training that I do. And by using visualization, you can visualize, and I teach people to visualize as many confrontations or whatever that you could possibly think about. So say you go into a restaurant, and I, I still do this every time I go to a restaurant with my family, although we haven't been able to go to too many restaurants recently. You know, I, I go in, and as soon as I sit down, I find out where the exits are, I, and then I'll visualize just a couple of scenarios of, okay, somebody comes in the front door with a gun, what am I going to do? And I just mentally walk through what I'm going to do with to protect me and my family. And, you know, then I'll pick another scenario that's, you know, slightly different. Maybe somebody stands up, somebody comes up from behind me, you know, what would I do in that situation? And that's it. It's, it, you know, it takes me less than a minute to do this, but the more times you visualize something like this, what happens is your mind doesn't know whether you visualized doing something or whether it actually happened. And by doing this thousands and thousands of times, and you have all these crazy, you know, some crazy, some not so crazy scenarios that you've gone through in your mind, then when something happens in, in life that's similar to one of those, your mind is going to loop back into that scenario and it's going to go, oh, wait, I've done this before. I know what to do. And I call flow the fourth reaction to, to stress because everybody talks about fight, flight, and freeze. But there's also flow. And if you think about it, there has to be flow as another outcome. It's just people don't think of it because it's not a negative reaction to stress. And, you know, if you can flow through the scenario, what that means to me is, so, so like fight means I'm going to fight because I, I think I can beat this person. We'll say, say it's a, a fight. And flight means I don't think I can beat this person for whatever reason. So you're going to run away. Freeze is that deer in the headlights look, which is like, I have no idea what's happening right now. And that's why doing these visualizations is so important because you're, you're less likely to, to freeze. You hopefully find something similar to what you're experiencing. And the last one, flow, means I know what's happening. And I can also know that there is you know, the best outcome possible for all parties involved in this. So, you know, and I apply this to everything in life and, and I'll do, I do it every single day before I come into to my office, I will visualize myself, you know, at my desk doing whatever I'm doing that I need to get done that day. If it's filming a new video for a course, I will, you know, take a minute to picture myself, 
you know, oh, later today, I, you know, I'm picturing myself over and setting up the cameras and stuff. And if I'm working on a new book, I'm picturing myself sitting at the, at my computer and typing. It takes just a minute, but it's amazing how much more you get done during a day if you just visualize yourself doing it before you actually, you know, attempt to do it. Thank you for sharing those examples because I was going to ask you, you know, there's that, the, the first example you gave, I'm going into a restaurant and I'm um, threatened. I was wondering, that's a very stressful way <laughs> to live, I guess. But I guess that's what you're trained for as a Navy SEALs to anticipate. It makes it less stressful. Because you've already resolved, yeah. figured out how to resolve it. Yeah. That makes sense to me. And the question I was going to have was, what about the other side of visualization that we've read about for so long? Practice the success of an experience, whether or not there's a hurdle to overcome or a threat to overcome. So you use it in both contexts. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I use it. You know, I work with um, competition shooters with firearms training, and I will teach them before the competition starts to visualize the entire competition. Or if it's just shooting at a single target, even not competition shooters, just people that if you want to get better at hitting a target, before you start shooting, close your eyes, visualize every single one of your rounds going into the center of the target. You know, I don't know statistically, but I know from teaching people for 30 years, it's definitely effective in improvement. Do you do other focus techniques like meditation? I do. That's actually the, the first thing I teach. And when it comes to firearms training, I think it's probably, I probably lose like half the people that show up at my website to learn how to shoot. When I tell them, you know, if I'm going to be your instructor, you are going to learn to meditate. And, you know, a lot of people don't want to do that. They're like, no, no, I just want to, you know, I want to learn how to pull the trigger. And it's like, well, you know, then I'm, I'm not your guy. I want one. I know it's, you're going to learn a lot faster by having a clear mind and being able to focus your mind because everything you do obviously comes from your mind. You know, how you hold the gun comes from how you think about holding the gun and, you know, everything you do in shooting is a memory of what you practiced. And yeah, I, I teach that. I teach everything. I do uh, health and fitness and talk about how that's important. I talk about how sleep is almost more important than what you're actually learning. And the reason being is if say I teach you how to just in general, I teach you how to shoot a gun today and you're like a great shooter today. I just taught you and you get less than five hours sleep tonight, tomorrow, you will forget up to 75% of what you learned today. That's a huge loss. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, that, that's like huge. And people don't think about those things when it comes to learning, you know, especially learning how to shoot. I, th I think other sports and stuff that, you know, may not think about it as far as the memory aspect of it, you know, they'll understand the physical aspect of, you know, you need a good night's sleep. But when it comes to learning, you know, and they've done tons of studies on this, like just think about forgetting 
75% of what you learned the day before. I mean, it's just wasted. And, you know, it's why it takes some people a long time to, to learn how to do things is, you know, it could be just because they're not getting a good night's sleep. Yeah, that's absolutely powerful. I'm curious about your your routines, your daily routines now, now that you're out of out of the teams. What are the same routines that you've kept and what are the different ones that you've got? Uh, the same routines I've kept is, well, I guess working out and, you know, staying in shape. Definitely done that. That's a huge part of my life. Do you train to the same level that you did while you were in service? Um, in some aspects, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I still play like competitive volleyball and table tennis. But physically, I, I work out every day. My, I have a, my garage is a, a gym. And yeah, I definitely, definitely work out just as hard. I probably not as much muscle mass as I had before, but it's, that probably has more to do with me getting over 50 than anything else. But <laughs> Shush. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I'm there too, my friend. <laughs> yeah. Um, so working out is one of the routines you've kept. Are there any new routines that you've introduced in terms of disciplining your life? Um, new routines? Well, one of the routines that I gave up that I probably need to get back into is for 20 years, I woke up at 4.59, like one minute before my alarm clock went off. I never remember hearing my alarm clock. And I remember literally 4.59, look at the alarm clock, turn it off, get up. And, you know, 20 years, you know, our circadian rhythms are, it's amazing how accurate that clock is. But I've, you know, when I retired, I was like, okay, I don't need to get up anymore. And so that just kind of led to me, especially running my own business and, you know, nobody well, except my wife can tell me what to do, you know, but it's, it's like, well, you know, I don't need to get up. So I'll, you know, stay in bed, but I know I'm much more effective when I do wake up early. I still have a morning routine that I do and that, that gets me going, but I think it'd, it'd be better if I got back to maybe not 4.59, maybe 5.59 be good because <laughs> so I have I have two uh, teenage boys and I think especially now with what's going on I think they're going to bed at like right before we get up oh teenagers yeah they've <laughs> got really crazy circadian rhythms okay so irrespective of the start time what is your daily routine that gets you going can you share that sure so I get up I make the bed I drink a big glass of water. Then I will get in my hot tub and then I will get in my cold tank. I have a six foot tall, three foot wide cedar ice tank oh. <laughs> that I keep at 57 degrees. It's very refreshing once you get used to it. Do you know what that is in Celsius by any chance? I'll have to do the conversion later if you don't. Yeah, no. No, I don't. Cold. Know. All right, I'll check it later. <laughs> it's cold. Yeah. So, 
yeah, I do that. Then I meditate. I have a little spot in my, my house that I meditate. I get a glass of lukewarm coffee. I usually have to put some ice in it because I don't like hot anything. Drink that. And what else? I feel like I'm missing something. Oh, I usually go for a walk in the morning uh, with my wife, go, to, go down to the beach, go for a long walk there. We might just walk the dog around the neighborhood. Yeah. And then plan out my day, visualize, you know, what I'm going to be doing and then get started. I do intermittent fasting. So I don't eat until usually dinner. I usually just have one meal a day. So it's, uh, yeah. Well, actually I just got, a, I just finished, I did a, I do uh, extended fasts with people online. I've got a Facebook group. I do it, but we just finished, I just finished a five day water fast. So it's good. Yeah. yeah, I haven't managed to get that far in my fasting, that's for sure. So the you, meditation, hot water, hot cold contrast, and that's mm-hmm. for metabolism and telomere strength, I guess, or renewal? Yeah, the, the hot is just, you know, to pretty much loosen up my all my sore muscles and my tight lower back. But then, yeah, I just the cold just wakes me up and I think it is super healthy for you. It turns your white fat into brown fat and healthy fat and cranks up your metabolism. Mm. And it really does. I know it's hard to believe, but once you get used to it, it's very refreshing. (laughs) And that could just to be kind of leftover from growing up in Wisconsin, which is a cold part here of the U S and uh, I used to walk around in shorts in the winter. And then, of course, being a Navy SEAL and being cold all the time there for 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can, well, I'm an outdoor person as well. So I've um, paddled all through Northwest Ontario and uh, had my fair share of cold mornings and cold experiences in the rain and so forth. Meditation, is there a particular type that you do? The closest thing... It's basically just a focused meditation where I'll focus on my breath, but I also, it's kind of like transcendental meditation where I have a mantra, which is just a word that I say, LAM, L A M, and I just use it because it doesn't mean anything. I say it over and over so it doesn't make me think about anything else if it was a, a word that meant something or a, a phrase that meant something to me. But it, it's, just about focusing on one thing. Sometimes it'll be my breath. Sometimes it'll be LAM. And I just focus on it. Thoughts come in. I don't get upset with the thoughts. I, they're just thoughts. And I thank them for visiting. And then I get back to, you know, my whatever I was focusing on. Mm. Um Question about your transition into civilian life. That's a big deal. So I've worked with lots of former soldiers, and that is often a really challenging time. You go from this really powerful, extreme lifestyle of intimacy and connection with your teammates to not having that anymore. And that sense of belonging or inclusion or community is kind of gone. How did you navigate that, and how have you dealt with that? I think I navigated it by with my business and 
kind of building my own new team, my own tribe that I have. And, you know, I'm happy to say that, that the people that, that join, I have a online membership and the, the people that have joined and most of them come to learn to shoot, but also so many of them have, you know, I have testimonials from, well, thousands of people now, but like people all saying basically the same thing. Like, yeah, I learned to shoot better than I ever thought possible, but more important than that, I'm a better person. I'm a better father. I'm a better husband. I can learn anything faster. And, you know, we really do feel like we're a team and there's no way it could be. And it's not anywhere close to what, you know, we had in the, in the SEAL teams and, and what, you know, they still have now, but there's a part of that. So, you know, I had to give up that deep connection with the being in the SEAL teams, but I did it because I, well, I came home from my last deployment and I realized that my family needed a leader. So, you know, they're also my, my team now. So I've got that team. I've got my, my online team and uh, seems to be working out pretty good. That's fascinating. One last question, I promise. Um, <laughs> one of the things that's always struck me as curious is how do you balance as a warrior this focus on violence and aggression? It's a tool that you mm -hmm. use as part of your role. And the other aspect of being a human, that sense of love, intimacy, and connection, which you have with your teammates as well as for your family. How does that work in the dynamics of your brain, body, being? That's a great question. And when I teach people to live like warriors, I teach, I have the 12 traits that I teach of living like a warrior, what it means to live like a warrior. And there's six hard traits and there's six soft traits. Please don't ask me what they all are right now because I <laughs> probably couldn't name them all. But are they in your latest book? No. Okay. But maybe my next book. So there's six hard traits, there's six soft traits. So one of my, I know one is love. That's the the last one. I, I think love is the most powerful force in the universe. And I teach people that. And one of the things I teach and I talked about earlier is finding your why. Like, why do you want to learn how to shoot a gun? And I give the example in the book, I do talk about this where I talk about my example of my why for what I'm doing right now. Why am I running this business? And I have an exercise that I have everybody go through. And the goal is to try to, if you can, get to love. And if you can get to love, that is super powerful and you're going to do whatever it takes to accomplish that mission. So for me, my why started off, well, why did I start this business? Well, I started this business because um, I need to make money. Okay, well, why do you need to make money? Well, I got to pay bills. Why do you have, you know, bills? Well, because I have a family. Why do you have a family? You know, well, because, you know, you just go down this, this thing and it's like, I ended, it ends up being, well, the reason I do this is because I love my family is the reason I do everything. So, 
when I come to work every day, if I were to think about, well, why am I, why am I going into the office to film a new video? If it's to make money, I can look in the bank and go, well, you know, I already got some money in the bank. I'm doing pretty good. No reason to do that. But if I say, well, I need to film another video today or do another course, write another book because I love my, my family, my wife and my kids, well, then I'm, you know, not a question. I'm just going to do it and do whatever it takes. I'm so glad I asked that question. <laughs> that was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I, you know, you know, another one is like vulnerability. I think is very important uh, for people to have. Patience is on the soft side. Patience is one of the most. I think it's interesting. I I've talked about it before on a lot of interviews and like what it takes to be a, a SEAL sniper. And one of the most important things is patience, because when people in general who think about a sniper. Um, you know, they just think about shooting people. Well, being a sniper shooting is one of the smallest percentages of things that you do. And even when it does come to shooting, one of the things you have to be able to do and do well is be patient. You have to sit and look at a target for days or weeks until you're able to, you know, accomplish your mission. And if you don't have patience, you're not going to have anything. And when it comes to these hard and soft traits, I think one of the problems that people have when they come back from deployments and they come back from war is they've been so exposed to the hard traits of a warrior. And I compare it to just like in you know Star Wars with the dark side and, and the light side. We all have them in us. But it's kind of like which one of the beasts, you know, which what is it? Which one of the uh, wolves do you feed? You know, that's mm. the one that's gonna gonna live. And you know, being on deployment and doing our job overseas, that's what you're feeding. You know, you're you're feeding the aggressive side, which needs to be done. But then you come back and you need to reconnect with the soft sides of what it means to be a warrior. And you know, reconnect uh, with love and vulnerability and patience. You know, those things are all just as much of being a warrior as the aggressive side. And I always ask people to, you know, can you imagine a warrior, you know, like a ninja or whatever, sitting sitting on a mountain with a sword? And you know, it's like, yeah, I can imagine that. It's like, okay, can you imagine that same warrior meditating on the side of that mountain? You know, oh yeah, I could. Okay, could you imagine that warrior, you know, painting? Oh yeah, I could imagine that. You know, so it's if people think about warriors, it's not just about aggression. It has to be balanced. I love it. Warrior is one of the archetypes I recommend in my latest book, People Stuff, as one of the crucial ones for business. And it's all the elevated aspects of warrior. It's not just violence to kill people. It's about purpose and courage and focus. So I love how you've explained that. That was just fantastic uh, from somebody who's been to war many times for many years. I really appreciate that. Chris, this has been just so fabulous. Thank you so much for sharing your stories and your insights and for the work that you're doing in the world. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. Oh my goodness, how much did I love this conversation? I could have sat and talked with Chris all day about his experiences, his focus, how he trains, how he manages his life and his world, and what we can adopt from that. And from this conversation in particular, I love his the fourth F <laughs> when it comes to fight, flight, freeze, or flow. 
I love that. I had never considered flow as an alternative to the amygdala hijack. And I think that is one of my key takeaways, is that if we can be disciplined and masterful in how we manage our thoughts and our emotions, we can have flow as an option to respond in difficult circumstances. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. And if you did, rate us, write a comment, write a question, share this episode with someone that you care about. All right. In the meantime, live well, lead well.